I am Matt Benson, the producer and editor of Pick Your Path. I also wrote this episode, which is entitled Trapped on Channel 2. You heard the regular version at the beginning of this month, and now this is the sort of canonical ultimate ending. Um, This is one where you don't have to pick the chapters. You can just uh, relax and listen to it. Maybe if you're in the car, this would be good for that. This episode is very late, of course. We don't have uh, an official release date set for these half episodes. However, this is clearly uh, across the line. Uh, things have been pretty hectic down here at the Pick Your Path offices, but uh, this is something we'll avoid in the future. Special thanks to Christopher Wrigley of Bunhouse Jingles for doing our amazing theme song. You can commission jingles of your own uh, from him at customjingles.net. Thanks also to Wayne Jansen, who did our incredible artwork. You can find his work at waynejansenart.com, and that's Jansen, J-A-N-S-E-N. I hope you enjoy this episode, and I hope you enjoy our next full episode, Time Waits for Norman, which premieres in just a few days. Chapter 1. It's 1999. You're 16 years old. You live in Dawson Creek, British Columbia. It's a sleepy little town with no relation to the show Dawson's Creek, except that ever since it premiered last year, out-of-towners have been making annoying little jokes about James Vanderbeek. You hate that. But at least, none of them stay in town long. Most visitors you get are just stopping by on the way to Alaska. Which is where you'll be heading in a few minutes. You have family in Gustavus, and your mom insists on visiting them once a year. As small and boring as Dawson Creek is, Gustavus is about ten times worse. Right now you're at Jungle Video, the only place with a decent selection within 300 miles. You popped in for a second while your mom gasses up the van. You were happy to see your friend Gordo looking through the foreign film section. Uh, anything new? You ask. Not much. He sighs. Oh, but they finally returned Jambafo versus Mecha Jambafo. After weeks of me bugging them to bug the guy about it. He yells the last part at the cashier who responds with a dismissive wave of the hand. You give an apologetic shrug. Gordo continues. Oh, check this out! He reaches over to another shelf and brings back a two-tape set. The best of Bainbridge County. You start laughing. <laughs> what is it, just two blank tapes? I can't believe they're doing a TV movie. I thought everyone hated this show. I think people started getting nostalgic for it as soon as it was cancelled. They don't remember how bad it was, Gordo theorizes. The fun is cut short when your mom enters the store. Come on, kiddo, we gotta go. She says. But I was making fun of Bainbridge County. You protest. Ah, uh, you can make fun of Bainbridge County in the car, sweetie. We have to leave now. She stands firm. Say goodbye to Gordo. 
Have fun, America, he says. I won't, you reply. You leave the video store and set out on the Canadian Alaskan Highway. Skip to Chapter 2. You're going to Chapter 2 whether you like it or not. Chapter 2 You lean your head on the cold window and watch the trees of British Columbia pass you by. The alpine larch. The vine maple. Oh look! A Sitka spruce. What an adventure this is turning out to be. You know, it's not too late to turn back. We're barely halfway there. You sigh. Your words fog up the window and you idly draw a stick figure with your finger in the condensation. Now stop it, your mom warns without taking her eyes off the road. No, seriously. You tread on, adding a little top hat to your stick figure. We've been on the road for what? Four hours? Just another four back. Bing, bing, boom, we're home. You do this every year, sweetheart. Because you take me on this trip every year, duh. They're family. You have to visit family. Oh, like one of them, you protest. Aunt Judy just married into it and Ben was just born into it. Yeah, that's, that's how families work, sweetie. They're like little Alaskan leeches, hiding in the frost, waiting to suck their life- Now stop it! You've pushed it too far. It is her brother's family you're talking about. She cools down. Look at it this way. You get to visit another country every year. How many of your friends can say that? You're a cool international traveler, sweetheart. Headed to America. It's not America, Mom. It's Alaska. You whine. America has Clint Eastwood and... Uh, you struggle to think of a second American thing. Finally, you finish. Hamburgers. All they have in Alaska is snow. We've got that at home. Your mother shrugs. They have moose burgers. Ugh! You aggressively sigh. The rest of the drive goes slowly and quietly. Finally, you arrive at your aunt and uncle's house in Gustavus. More generous people than you would describe the place as cozy or homey. You think it's a small, dumpy house in a small, dumpy town in the middle of a small, dumpy nowhere. Your mom sits and talks to your aunt and uncle while your 14-year-old cousin, Ben, drags you off to his room. You don't like your cousin, Ben. He watches network TV and likes sports. Ben's a real bummer. You're excited about the big BVN crossover tonight? He coos. What? You spit disdainfully. You don't know? Oh man, I would have thought you of all people would know. He says. You stare coldly at him. He continues. Bainbridge County is coming back as a TV movie, and it's crossing over with the season finale of Watertown High and the season premiere of Big Ape on Campus. Oh, it's going to be a huge event. Uh, I don't like those shows, you say, trying to use as little words as possible. You don't like those shows? He repeats, dumbfounded. Wait, have you ever actually seen them? You try again to force him into silence with your icy death stare. You fail. I think you'd like them if you watched them. Here, which do you want to watch first? He takes three tapes from his closet. Big Ape on Campus, Episodes 1 through 3, Watertown High, Episodes 7 through 9, and that Bainbridge County best of that you were making fun of back at the video store. The thought of watching any of these makes you sick, but at least you'll get your cousin to shut up for a bit. To watch Bainbridge County, skip to Chapter 3. To watch Big Ape on Campus, skip to Chapter 4. To watch Watertown High, skip to Chapter 5. Chapter 3 
You think about what you must have done in a previous life to deserve this, as your cousin hits play on a VCR. It hasn't been rewound, so it starts mid-scene. Oh, this is a good part! Squeals Ben. You watch begrudgingly. A man and a woman stand underneath the terminal at a bus station. The woman has big, poofy 80s hair. The man has a perm and a mustache. So, this is it. You're leaving again. You aren't even going to say goodbye? Says the man. Ben whispers. That's Chet and Vanessa. They love each other, but they never- Shh! You shush your cousin, choosing the lesser of the two evils. I can't stay here. This county is toxic. It pushes people apart, makes them hate each other. I don't ever want to see you that way, says Vanessa. Well, that, that wouldn't happen to us, insists Chet. Not if you come with me, invites Vanessa. You know I can't do that. I know. They stare down in silence for a moment. When they look up, Chet goes in for a kiss. No, says Vanessa. If you kiss me now, it'll be the last time ever. I can't live with that. Suddenly, the screen goes black. What just happened? Says Ben, a trace of panic in his voice. You say nothing, hoping that the situation will resolve itself. Ma'am! Screams Ben. His mother, your Aunt Judy, comes into the room. What's wrong, sweetie? She asks. The, the TV's broken, and the BVN crossover's tonight, and I, I need the TV to watch the BVN crossover, and... and, and he cries. Your mom and uncle have come to see the commotion. Okay, well, I'm sure Ralph can fix it in time. He always does. She says, turning to your mom. Ralph's our TV repair guy. We must have had this set fixed a thousand times. Ben just refuses to let us replace it. Well, I, I like the noise it makes when it turns on. He whines. What if I never hear that voice again? It seems like he's going to start crying. We'll fix it, it'll be fine. Your aunt soothes. I'll take it right now. Oh, shoot, I can't take it in. I, I have to keep an eye on the roast. Do you see the opportunity to get away from your cousin? I can take it in. I can take the TV in. You almost shout, eager to make the offer before your mom and uncle could pipe in to say they can watch the roast. Oh, that's right, you drive now, Aunt Judy says. Two months in and already having a driver's license is paying off. She gives you the keys to her minivan and money for the repairs, and just like that, you're driving through a bustling downtown Gustavus with a busted TV in your back seat. You're coming to an intersection. You have to turn right to get to the TV repair shop. But the sooner the TV is repaired, the sooner you have to go back to your cousin. If you turn left to explore the town and stay away from your family for as long as possible, skip to chapter 6. If you turn right to get the TV fixed, skip to chapter 7. Chapter 7 You turn right, then immediately right again into the TV repair parking lot. It's a small place in a strip mall with a taxidermist and a taco temple. You shudder to think of what's in the meat at a taco temple up here. You enter the shop. Wires and glass tubes and other bits of television viscera spread grotesquely across the various surfaces. A little old man in goggles works on a TV with a soldering iron in the back. You're going to ask him for help getting the TV out of the car, but now that you see him, you think better of it. You spot a dolly leaning against the wall. Um, I'm just going to borrow this for a second, you shout at the back of the shop. The repairman responds with a vague noise of acknowledgement. By the time you wheel the TV into the shop, the old man is asleep at the counter. 
keeping his head propped up with his hand. You cough to get his attention. He snaps awake. What? Hey, that's my dolly! He accuses. Y yeah I borrowed it to bring my TV in. You say. Oh yeah, I remember you. That was, what, hours ago? Get out of here, we're closed. His shoes. It was just a minute ago, it's only 2.55, you insist. Huh, alright, what do you want? He spits. I need you to fix the TV. My cousin needs it to watch the BVN crossover tonight, so, you know, t t take your time. You say sarcastically. You don't want me to fix it? He asks. No, I, I, I was just joking. My cousin would be super mad at me if he missed the show. You clarify. The old man comes around the corner, bends down, and presses his ear to the back of the television. Shows. He corrects. What? You say out of reflex, forgetting that you don't care. You said show. The crossover is not one big show, it's three shows, all telling different sides of the same story. He explains. Whatever. You say. You don't like television, do you? He asks, moving his ear around the different parts of the set. I like films. You reply. Even you thought you sounded a little smug that time. I don't trust a man who can't see the value in sitting down in front of the boob tube and unwinding every once in a while. That's why I'm in this business. He says, standing up. Uh, I'm not a man. You counter. He squints at you. Yeah, I suppose not. He decides. Well, your set won't be ready till tomorrow, but I can give a loaner to use until then. I don't think my cousin will like that, but if that's what we have to do... You say. Oh, don't worry about your cousin, I've got something special. I think you're going to be very impressed. He promises. He leads you to the back of the store, to a TV covered by a sheet. He pulls it off to reveal... A totally normal looking television set. Okay, great, thanks. I'll be getting on the dolly. You say. Hmm. You don't get it. He says. This is an extraordinary machine. It's just TV. You say. Not the TV, you simpleton! He screeches, pointing to a box of buttons and a dial on top of the set. This! You have cable? You say, unimpressed. This is not a cable box! He declares. It's a receiver! You look around the box. You only see a single cord connecting it to the TV. Where's the antenna? You ask. Inside! He smiles proudly. And it's not just that. It can pick up the transmissions from anywhere in the world! You can get shows from other countries on this? You ask. Other countries, yes! He nods. Other times as well. Well, how does that work? You question. A signal is transmitted from the East Coast at 5, reaches the West Coast at 8, here at 9. He says. That's not how it works, but okay. You say. Hush, of course it is. He counters. And this machine can pick up that signal at any point on the journey. Uh, even if it did work that way, there's no reason your receiver could do that. You reason. He continues undeterred. The buttons control the machine. The dials control the time from which you see them. Cool. You lie. Well, I'll get off your hair now. Just gonna load the TV up on the dolly here. You don't believe me. He sighs. Oh, of course I do. You lie even less convincingly. But I have to get back, you know. Can't miss that crossover. 
I'll show you. We can watch tonight's crossover right now. Which do you want to watch? Watertown High, Bainbridge County, or Big Ape on campus? Yes. I, I don't care, you say hesitantly. I can't choose for you, he says, deadly serious. You think you should make a choice. If you watch Watertown High, skip to chapter 10. If you watch Bainbridge County, skip to chapter 11. If you watch Big Ape on campus, skip to chapter 12. Chapter 10 Uh, okay. Watertown High, I guess, you say. Hmm. He replies and switches on the TV. It shows generic shots of a high school, followed by generic shots of a science lab, all narrated by a generic voiceover. My name is Alexandra Pierce. It starts. I grew up on Area 51. My parents are researchers for the United States government. When I was 12, my mom woke me up in the middle of the night to tell me that she was being called up. That was the last time I saw her. Since then, I've made it my mission to find out what happened to her. Balancing that, classes, boys, and my best friend Lee makes life pretty busy here at Watertown High. Were they worried we'd forget the name of the show? <laughs> you scoff. Don't be a smart aleck. The old man cuts. He moves a folding chair in front of the TV and, with a calmly assertive hand on your shoulder, forces you into it. You feel uneasy. The uneasy feeling is warranted, you learn, as the old man suddenly grabs the back of the chair and pushes you toward the TV. Hard. You throw your arms up to protect your face, and everything goes black. You're in a classroom. An English teacher drones on about symbolism. This doesn't make sense. School's on break. You look out the window and see an endless stretch of desert. Oh, Miss Orwell, you should have been dismissed 20 minutes ago. You may leave, says the teacher. You keep staring at the desert. What is this place? Miss Orwell, the teacher says again. You keep looking out the window. A light shoots past in the sky. It looks like a shooting star. But it would have to be either very close or very bright to be visible in the middle of the day like this. The teacher clears his throat and nearly shouts, <clears throat> Miss Orwell. You finally turn your attention from the window. The entire class is staring at you. Oh, you're Miss Orwell. You're excused, says the teacher. I believe you have a flight to make. You nod awkwardly and bolt for the door. Uh, Miss Orwell, the teacher interrupts. Your things. He gestures toward your desk, still with an open book on top and a backpack leaning on the chair. You blush as you grab your stuff and exit the classroom to a chorus of laughter from your fellow students. Once in the hallway, you duck into the first bathroom you see. You look in the mirror. You are not you. You're a nerdy teenage girl complete with standard nerd glasses and preppy clothes. You search your backpack for clues as to what's going on. You get your first name Carly off some homework, but not much else. You're putting homework away when someone else enters the restroom. You actually recognize her. It's Alexandra Pierce, the main character from Watertown High. Lee! She exclaims. You go by Lee, you just remembered. What are you doing? I've been looking everywhere for you. We have to go. Sorry, Mr. Holloway forgot about the trip and didn't excuse me until like two seconds ago. You tell, not certain how you knew the teacher's name. It must have been written on the board. Okay, well, we need to go now. We're gonna miss the flight. That's right, you're supposed to fly to Boston today. Officially, it's for a student visit to Harvard. 
but really it's because Alex thinks her mom is working on a top secret recruitment mission there. You feel bad for letting her down. You feel a sense of deep friendship toward her, but you have to get back to your real life. You try to think of how you would do that. Is it like Last Action Hero where you'll need to find a portal, or is it like Pleasantville, where you have to learn some dumb lesson and just wait for Don Knotts to let you come home? You remember the premise of this show. You're at Area 51. If there was a portal, it would be here. But it would crush you to let Alex down. She is your best friend. You feel this pull to go with her. Besides, if her mother is doing top secret missions at Harvard, who's to say they wouldn't have a portal? Plus, if you're going the Pleasantville route, not betraying your friend is probably the better option. If you go to Boston with Alex, skip to chapter 19. If you stay at Watertown High to look for a portal, skip to chapter 20. Chapter 20 Your best shot at getting home is finding a portal here. You shake off the urge to go to Boston. That's Lee, not you. I'm not going to Harvard today. You declare. Alex looks stunned. Well, what do you mean? She says. Lee, I need your help. If my mom's at Harvard, I can't find her without you. You struggle to think of a reason why you're staying. You remember the light you saw through the window. Oh, something's going on here today. You explain. I saw this bright light whizzing around the desert. I think they're testing alien tech again. You remember the first time you saw them testing alien tech? That was the night Alex and Max first kissed. You've never seen more than five minutes of the show, but you remember this because you were there. Oh, you're uncomfortable with all the leaf thoughts taking up space in your brain. The more I can find out about what the government is doing here, the better chance we'll have of finding your mom. You reason? Besides, you're Alexandra Pierce. When have you ever had trouble doing something on your own? She smiles at you. She's such a sucker for flattery. Okay, if you think that's for the best, she says. She gives you a hug and leaves for Boston. You set about searching the base. Getting out of school is easy. Anyone who would stop you thinks you're leaving for Harvard. Getting into the base's science labs is a little trickier. You swipe your dad's access card. He thinks you don't know that he keeps a backup in the false bottom of a Folgers coffee tin in the pantry. Like you wouldn't notice that he's never drank a cup of the stuff in your life. The card gets you in without problems. You weave your way through the labyrinthine halls of the most secretive research facility in America. This isn't your first rodeo, but you still don't know exactly where everything is. In semi-secure areas, it's enough to act like you belong there. In secure areas, you have to be very careful to listen for footfalls and spend a lot of time ducking behind corners. Finally, you find the room you're looking for. Applied Sciences. You've never been in here before. It's where they keep all the goods. If you'd been caught anywhere else, you'd be reprimanded, but not much else. Your dad is one of the top scientists, after all. If you're caught here, well, you'll probably get killed. You slide your dad's access card in the automated lock at the door. It flashes red. You've never seen it flash red. You thought your dad had access everywhere. An alarm starts blaring. Unauthorized access attempt detected. Unauthorized access attempt detected. Repeats a calm voice over and over again on the PA system. This is bad. You need to leave quick, but you still think your best chance at getting home is in this room. And if the portal is in there, that would certainly be the fastest way out of here.
If you try to run away before the guards arrive, skip to chapter 28. If you kick the door down to get into the room, skip to chapter 29. Chapter 29 You take a step back and give the door a good kick. Somewhat to surprise, it swings right open. Wait, of course it did. That always works on TV. And you're on TV. No time to stand around feeling good about yourself. You rush into the room to look for some way home. A number of fantastic devices are conveniently lined up on tables and labeled. Let's see, force field generator, matter exploder, death ray, time machine, genesis bomb, ice nine, ah, there it is, interdimensional gateway creator. It looks like an ordinary button-operated flashlight. You pick it up and the lens spins ever so slightly. Beneath the spot it was sitting, you see a card, with the name of the device, the date of completion, and a list of scientists who worked on the project. Several are ominously crossed off. Wasting no further time, you point it at the wall and press the button. Nothing happens. You press it six more times. Still nothing. You try to screw the bottom to check the batteries and instead you find a keyhole. You're starting to panic. The alarm seems to be growing louder. But even over the sound of that, you hear running from the outside hallway. You grab two force field generators, which are large metallic cones, and place them at either side of the doorway. The glowing purple force field goes up just in time for one of your attackers to plow face-first into it. It holds them off, but you're going to have to think of another way out of here. You eye the matter exploder. This one looks like a gun with a humongous barrel. You fire the matter exploder at the wall opposite the exit. Lucky for you, the wall led directly outside. You pocket the note card for the portal generator and don the invisibility poncho you didn't see hanging on the coat rack before heading out. Safely invisible and wandering around the desert in Area 51, you check the list of scientists on the note card. One of them must have the key. There are only two names that haven't been crossed off. Dr. Logan Cavanaugh and Dr. Gerard Oberchuk. If you look for Dr. Cavanaugh, skip to Chapter 30. If you look for Dr. Oberchuk, skip to Chapter 32. Chapter 32 Dr. Oberchuk is the way to go. But how are you going to find him? Look around the base. You see houses, a baseball diamond, administration buildings, ah! There it is. One of the buildings has a large sign reading records. You stride into the building, still in the invisibility poncho. The front door was unlocked, but you doubt you'll have much luck further on. You're in a small lobby. There are a few chairs, one door, a front desk with a receptionist, and a guy in a lab coat flirting with the receptionist. The guy's ID card is just sitting on the desk. Smooth as silk, you swipe the card. You've got a feeling your dad's card has been flagged. As quietly as possible, you sneak through the door into a warehouse filled with boxes and boxes of records. There is also a single computer at a small desk. You hope the digitization is going well. You sit at the desk and slide the pilfered ID card through a reader next to the monitor. A window opens on the screen with a single line of text reading, Welcome, Mick. And a search bar. You type Oberchuck and hit enter. A number of results appear, most of them projects that he worked on, the portal generator, the time machine, a food synthesizer. The descriptions for all of them say classified at this clearance level in big, bold, menacing letters. The only non-classified item is the one you're looking for, personal profile. There you find his address, hobbies, age, weight, height, eye color, favorite TV shows, and drink preference. You memorize the first one and leave the facility, dropping the ID next to a confused mick on the way out.
You find Oberchuk's house. It's small and kind of separated from the rest of the base. The door is ajar. There's trash everywhere, one wall is covered with newspaper clippings and bits of string connecting them. In the middle of it all, a man sits in a ratty old chair. He has long hair, but he's starting to lose it. He looks more like a bouncer than a scientist, except for the dirty lap coat. He holds a key in the air. I'm glad you found your way here, he says, leaping out of the chair. He runs over and pulls the invisibility poncho off you. Finally, someone else who knows the truth. You know who I am? You ask shakily. You look like Carly Orwell, best friend and sidekick to that nosy little Alexandra Pierce. He answers. But I think we both know that's not who you really are. Right, you say. Because this isn't real. It's a TV show, he continues. Yeah, you shout. Are you trapped here too? Unfortunately not, Overchuck explains. I'm technically supposed to be here. I was created as part of Watertown High's backstory. You've never seen me on the actual show, but the writers have it written down somewhere that I work here, so here I am. How did you figure this out when no one else here did? You say. I've got some theories about that, he says. I think I'm based on a real Dr. Overchuck from your universe. Someone who knows a thing or two about alternate dimensions. That would make the most sense. All the writers deliberately gave me fourth wall awareness to monitor continuity from within the universe. Great. All I want to know is, can this flashlight take me home? Yes, he answers. I built it to see into other worlds. I've heard rumors of a freestanding portal somewhere out east. But there's far too much unexplored land between here and there. I'd never make it. So I built my own, but I can never get it to work until now. Why? You worry. The multiverse is like space. It's very big and mostly empty. Without turning the generator to the right frequency, all I can do is open a portal to empty space. But with you here, it should automatically tune to the frequency of your universe. When I picked it up, the lens turned a little without me touching it. You remember? His eyes light up. Give me the flashlight, he commands. You toss it to him, puts the key in the back, points it at a wall, and turns it on. It creates a portal on the wall, about five feet in diameter. You can see their TV repair shop on the other side. You run toward it. Wait, shouts Overchuck. He shuts down the portal and you run face first into the wall. Your nose bleeds. Oh! You yell. Sorry, I was just saving your life. He condescends. Stand here and look again. You stand next to Overchuck as he turns the device back on. You see the TV repair shop again, but this time you notice something. It's huge. Cavernously, monstrously huge. Why is it so big? You ask. Hmm. Overchuck ponders. Perhaps it's because your universe is much larger than this one. In order to fit here, you would have to have been shrunk. If that's correct and you go through this portal now, one of two things will happen. 
One, you will return to your universe three inches tall. Two, you will rapidly return to your normal size, becoming far too large for the portal on the other side. Severing whatever part of you goes through first. He turns off the portal again. Okay, so what do we do? You ask. If it's the first option, there's nothing we can do. I suppose I could try to invent a rebeginning ray. He thinks aloud. But no, rebeginning technology is years away. If it's the second option, we'll just need to create a bigger aperture so that you won't get stuck. Well, how do we do that? You ask. He smiles knowingly. Soon you're flying over the Nevada desert in a rickety old two-seat airplane. The portal opener is strapped to the side, pointing at the ground. Once we get high enough, he'll give you the signal. Turn on the portal and jump, he shouts over the sound of the engine. Remember, the flashlight is attached to the plane, so the portal is going to be moving. It'll be big enough that you should make it if you jump right away. But if you wait too long, you'll be nothing more than a patch of red sand in the desert. What happens when I go through the portal? Won't I be falling too fast? You ask. The process of crossing over should slow you down. I'm sure of it. He reassures. Mm, pretty sure. You don't like the way he said pretty sure. Not one bit. Suddenly the plane's radio comes to life in a burst of static. Dr. Overchuck, on the order of the United States government, land your aircraft immediately. Overchuck picks up the transmitter and responds. Tell Uncle Sam to bite me. Do you have any idea what you're doing? The voice comes back. Miss Orwell is one of the core characters holding this reality together. She serves as a good foil for Alex and adds some much needed diversity to allow us to appeal to a wider audience. I thought you were the only one who knew this was a show. You yell. I am. Overchuck insists. Don't be so naive, old man. The voice on the radio scolds. Of course we know. Why do you think we behave like such monsters? The show needs a compelling villain. We only live as long as the show is on the air. With Lee, we could make eight or nine seasons. Without her, we've got one more tops. If you jump out of that plane, you're killing all of us. Is he telling the truth? You ask. I don't know. Overchuck answers. But we're high enough now, I won't stop you if you still want to leave. You're not coming with me? Your universe already has an overchuck. One is enough for any universe. If you stay, skip to chapter 33. If you go, saving yourself, but potentially condemning everyone in this universe, skip to chapter 34. Chapter 34 You turn on the portal and jump. The wind whooshes past you and it feels like you're flying. You tense up as you near the portal. Everything goes black. TV's ready! Calls a voice from the distance. You open your eyes. You're in the repair shop, sitting in the folding chair. A middle-aged man stands behind the counter. You look at him, dumbfounded. TV's ready! He says again. Uh, where's the old guy? You ask. The middle-aged man pauses for a second. You saw him too? He fumes. He looks furiously around the room. Really, Dad? You're an open book to anyone that walks through that door, but your own son... Oh... 
What are you talking about? You say. You saw the ghost. He says flatly. You know, you're the 16th customer that he's appeared to, and I haven't seen him for a second since he died. Skipped every birthday I ever had, and doesn't consider that unfinished business? Now to sell this place. Move somewhere warm. The windows rattle. Yeah, I've heard that a million times. Either show yourself like a man or leave me alone. Can I just pay for the repair? You ask. You give him your aunt's money and leave the shop. You check the time. It's 6.45. Watertown High starts in 15 minutes. You hustle back to the house. You pull up in the driveway and honk the horn repeatedly. Come on, we gotta get this TV hooked up before 7. I don't want to miss Watertown High. You beckon. You're eager to see if it was actually you in the show. The whole family comes out to see. Come on, let's get in the house quick. You gesture to the TV. Your mom stares at you incredulously. You want to watch Watertown High, sweetheart? Uh, yeah. You answer. Is that so hard to believe? They all stare at you. We're wasting time, Ben. I know you don't want to miss it. This snaps him out of it. Oh, yeah. Dad, come on. We gotta get in the house. Ben squeals. Your uncle brings it in and hooks it up. It turns on just in time for the show. Ben smiles at you. See what I mean about the noise? You make a show of being annoyed with your cousin, but honestly, it's not a bad noise. You watch the show intensely, waiting for Carly to appear. You try to hide your amazement when she does. She says all the things you said. She stays behind on the base like you did. You were really there. And then, something odd happens. Carly shows up again at the end of the episode. She didn't leave the universe when you did. The man on the radio was lying. Show is going to be fine. That's when you notice an extra in the background of that final scene. It's Dr. Oberchuk. He's so far away and out of focus that you're probably the only one watching who noticed him turn to the camera and wink. As the credits roll, you look at Ben and say, You know, this isn't such a bad show after all. This path ends here. To pick another path, return to chapter 1.